0: Burton, I think of the Stabola brothers, but no. Let's be honest. The number eight edition, the episode of Positive Regression. This is the Dale Earnhardt Jr. edition of
1: Positive Regression. I mean, who do you really think of anyone else when you think of the number eight, David? I certainly don't. I don't think you need a a highbrow NASCAR podcast to tell you that Dale Earnhardt Jr. was a thing at Daytona. Uh, He won four points-paying races there. That's that's not including the the clashes and duels and Xfinity races that he won. I think we can give his Daytona dominance a different perspective. He participated in exactly 36 points-paying races at Daytona. Alan, that's a full season's worth of races at this facility, uh, which helps for this particular exercise. Dale Jr. scored a 2.813 production in equal equipment rating Uh, He finished in the top half of Daytona Fields two-thirds of the time over those 36 races. He crashed 14 times over the span, good for a per-race crash frequency of 0.39. But let's go back to that peer rating. 2.813 is better than all but one of his 18 individual seasons in the Cup Series. Pretty incredible. One track as volatile as Daytona and restrictor plate racing is, that means something. He earned uh, a 3.0 pier in 2004. That was the only season that uh, surpassed his uh, hypothetical Daytona year. That shows you uh, what an incredible, efficient drafter he was. Very productive, uh, even more so. I never thought that he got enough credit on the normal tracks as a passer, even in the Last three seasons prior to his concussion in 2017, he ranked fifth, first, and third in the NASCAR Cup Series in surplus passing value. One of the things that I don't think gets enough credit, and this may be one of my favorite things about him, he he is still adding to his legacy. If you consider his record as a car owner, he was, on five occasions, the owner of record for an Xfinity Series champion in 2004 and 2005 with Martin Truex, 2014 with Chase Elliott, 2017 with William Byron, and last year with Tyler Reddick. Currently, that is tied for the most, along with Jack Roush. One more championship would give Dale Jr. control of that top spot. Of course, that is unofficial, given the NASCAR Awards Owners Championships in a separate point standing because... Hey, we like to do things convoluted here uh, in this sport. But nevertheless, Earnhardt, quite good, quite popular, a better passer than most people expect, and successful in his effort to give back to the sport just a little bit.
0: All great points, and specifically the eight car. When I think about that, he had 17 wins in those first seven years of his career in that eight car, that iconic red Budweiser car, career high f- uh, points finish of 3rd in that first chase for the championship year. And I just think about remember this is this is when NASCAR was on the meteoric rise to the top. It's an error we often compare now, right? I mean everything we think about NASCAR now, we are comparing it to the absolute top and most popular that it ever was. It doesn't get to that point without Dale Jr. doing that winning, without without that number 8 with that without that iconic Budweiser car. And that's what I think about when I think about the number eight. So to to have episode eight, it's only proper that we uh, tie back to the number eight. And David, I must say, yes, there was a a down point in his career after that eight car before starting the winning again in the 88, a, a few years later, but late in his career, his most productive career, most productive year in almost a decade with four wins, 12 top fives and 20 top tens, what age do you think he was?
1: Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, 39. He was age 39. (laughs) And if you are a
0: regular listener of positive regression, you know, a driver's most production a driver gets is at age 39. So I just thought that that was a great thing to point out, David.
1: Just as as a memory, what is the what is the lasting Dale Jr. memory for you? Uh, for me, honestly, just because I was fortunate enough to work in the sport later in
0: his career, I mean, I was literally in victory lane when he won that Daytona 500, I believe, 2014. So to be right there, I mean, how as a child of the 90s, as a, as a lifelong race fan, someone who uh, I I mean admired slash hated his father, but all that good stuff. But to have to be there for that moment w- was cool. But again, it all goes back to that iconic. Eight car, obviously in in the red, so a uh, little bit of both. But being there in Daytona for his uh, 500 victory was really cool.
1: That is pretty cool. You know, for for me, it's a, a little bit different one, and and I don't know that I've heard anyone mention it when discussing Dale Earnhardt Jr. At some point during his first season in the Bush Grand National Series, now the Xfinity Series, he had won some races, and Jeff Gordon was on a, a dominant streak over in the Cup Series there was a an ESPN sports center interview with Ray Evernham and the, the chat was about Gordon's dominance how long it might last and Evernham said that there are a bunch of young drivers on the rise that he's worried about and he pointedly mentioned Dale Jr and that was sort of the first time for me remember last episode I'm fascinated with the next big thing but that was the moment that crystallized oh This guy might be something. Dale Jr. might be more than a name. And sure enough, two championships in the Xfinity series and came on like gangbusters, uh, winning the all-star race in his rookie season. Uh, Three wins, I think, on the whole that year. Incredible. I think he had a a worthwhile career more so uh, than a lot of people give it credit for.
0: Absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, I'm glad we summed it up as much as we could. One of the most popular drivers in NASCAR history. Good way to start Episode 8 of Positive Regression. Later in this episode, we will uh, we got a lot of good feedback from readers and some good questions. We will unpack some of those questions sent to us this week. All worth getting into, so I look forward to that. But first, David, Kyle Bush has forced the conversation because he is that damn good at winning races and depending on when you listen to this if you're listening to this Sunday morning he may already have 200 NASCAR wins if it's Thursday when the episode first drops first of all we appreciate it uh he's still on 199 though but uh he is approaching uh, a milestone in NASCAR no matter which way you look at it no matter which way you debate it 200 NASCAR victories is a milestone and David, it was a cool moment to uh, be asked uh, by the producers at Fox to try to sum this up in, in you know, just a minute, minute fifteen seconds, but to sum up Kyle Bush and what he has done and what he has accomplished and what he maybe what he may accomplish. And I got to do that for race day, heading into last week's race at Phoenix, and it was uh, it was a cool exercise because I've been able to watch Kyle Bush's entire career and, and been fortunate enough to cover it, uh, at the track and some of the races. I mean, the last one, he last truck race, he won, I was in victory lane with Kyle Busch and had his pit stall all night. And y- you know, you hear him on the radio, you hear the strategy and all that goes along with it. So it was, uh, I felt like it was a good responsibility and I was quite honored to do it, David.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, you wrote the essay yourself. Yeah. lot. That's a lot of, uh, a, a, lot uh, of uh, a lot of viewers at home might not realize <laughs> that, that you, you actually, you actually scripted your own words for that. And it was very well written. I, I enjoyed it. I, I noticed a, a, a little analytics shout out uh, to to peak age, and and the notion that he has not even hit his prime yet. Kind of scary if you're a competitor or you're you know a, a, a hater, uh, I suppose. But um, very well written and um, pretty poignant. But I, I've got to ask because I I first saw that making the rounds on social media. Uh, you you caught the brunt of this. What was what was the popular <laughs> reaction to this well let me tell you if you didn't know before this kyle
0: bush is kind of polarizing i mean can you believe it <laughs> uh well it, it, it was interesting because it it was most of what you expected. I'll give you that in terms of the Kyle Busch does have a lot of fans and winning a lot of races and having bright colors like M&M's. Uh, you know, it's fun. It's fun to root for a winner. I would I wish I could go back if I as a as a young child and if I was going to pick somebody, I would be a Kyle Busch fan. Why wouldn't you? Uh Who doesn't like winning all the time? So Kyle Busch does have a lot of fans. Kyle Busch also has a lot of haters. And I heard from all of them about how he was beating up on the rookies, on how he was doing it in the AAA series, how he was just ruining the sport. That was probably my favorite response. This was all caps. I got Kyle Busch and write a book called How I Ruined NASCAR. (laughs) And it was all in caps. And I just thought that was one of the more creative responses. Uh, that I received. Um, Can the
1: entire book be written in all caps?
0: Uh, th- that would be. I mean, I, that'd be Kyle's uh, choice, but I, I would hope he would do that if he was yeah. indeed going to be an author. But, I think
1: that's the route that you have to take if you're gonna if you're gonna put that out.
0: <laughs> uh, but there was also. We're, look, we're starting. No one sees this in their prime. Jeff Gordon did not see this in their prime. Jimmy Johnson certainly not. Dale Earnhardt. No one saw. No one sees the appreciation. I, I think, especially from the haters in their prime, and, and Kyle Bush won't either until a few years go by, uh, until some time passes. But I did see some of that, at least a little bit, at least people being fair and acknowledging that even though I may dislike him, even though I may hate him, even though I may not like him and call him the worst names I won't even repeat on this podcast, I can appreciate what he's doing. I recognize the talent. So I was happy to at least see some of that because as the years go on, we will see more and more of that about Kyle Busch, and it's well-deserved. And again, we're seeing it with Jimmy Johnson now. We saw it with Jeff Gordon late in his career. Uh, Certainly Dale Earnhardt as well. Kyle Busch will get that deserved uh, positive attention, even from his haters. And with the essay, what I wanted to do is just go beyond the numbers and just show that he stands alone. That was one of my lines. You know, you're judged by the company you keep. Well, he is alone as the all-time truck series winner he is alone as the all-time xfinity series winner and he hasn't even hit his prime yet at age 33 and that feeling he creates that every time he's on the racetrack you know he can win that race no matter who's in the field no matter what field what format what vehicle he can win the race if he's on the racetrack he's created that feeling and there aren't many other drivers that produce that feeling and that has
1: to be appreciated so we'll we'll table the talk of haters, right? Because I mean, it, it is uh, natural to to root against a guy winning all the time. I think it was Bill Simmons who said rooting for the New York Yankees is like rooting for the house in blackjack, right? That that's there's no no fun, uh, no spirit in that. But I do want to ask you if you were to remain at a, a neutral level, where do you come down on? Kyle Busch choosing to amass a win total that involves knowingly competing against drivers clearly not of his caliber?
0: Great question.
1: I I, I don't mind it. I I see
0: him as a racer. I see as racers wanting to drive and win races you could make the argument you know how, what what percentage of the cup series field is not of his talent level and he's still going out there and competing against them you know it, it's it's racing it's tough with racing because you can look at Xfinity and truck as feeder series to the cup series or you can look at them as their own independent entities and if Kyle were to go race in the world of outlaws you know you would laud him we do it for Kyle Larson whether he goes and beats them in an, in an outlaw car but I think each series, each car is different, and your your ability to excel at that uh, should be celebrated. And especially Xfinity itself, look, there were plenty of races where Kyle Busch beat Brad Kislowski in a Penske car, where he beat Kevin Harvick in a, in a high-speed RCR car, in a quality RCR car, or other cup drivers in other good equipment. So it's not like... I don't feel like he's beating up on a bunch of kids and a racers out there to race. I think track time will always be a benefit. And I think that's why he is who he is because whether it's Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, (laughs) Kyle Busch, 10,000 laps, track time is track time and you're learning with every lap out there. And I firmly believe that's what made Kyle Busch who he is today.
1: You know, there's a a fine line between what, NASCAR wanted from Kyle Busch and what Kyle Busch wanted from Kyle Busch. I I probably also stand on that line. In regards to NASCAR limiting the amount of Xfinity and truck races that cup drivers uh, can compete in, I'm very much against that. There's something very anti-labor in telling where and how drivers can, can make a living. I think if a if a, a race car driver does want to compete in the xfinity series they absolutely can now i think the the spirit of coming down to the the bush grand national series or the craftsman truck series has been lost along the way i did enjoy uh years ago when harry gant treated the bush series as a hobby or when michael waldrip was uh rolling out his mwr team and this was This was before the Cornelius, North uh, Carolina-based team. This was uh, the team out of his garage shop at his home doing it as a hobby. I applaud that, and if Kyle Busch wanted to do that, that does make some sense. On the other hand, you do see a driver uh, or anybody a competitor with this sort of approach, a willingness to just see uh, the possibility of a win and take it regardless of who he's beating. Uh, it'd be tantamount to LeBron James cruising the country looking for a local YMCA for some suckers to smoke or Magnus Carlson taking his chessboard to a, uh, an elementary school so he can checkmate little Billy. I mean, there, you're, you, there, there is a fine line. It's an almost maniacal obsession that Kyle Busch has towards winning, but you also don't achieve the level of, of greatness, and especially at the Cup Series level, that Kyle has done it without, I don't know, having sort of this reckless abandon for getting wins at all costs. I'm sort of in the middle on on, on all of this. I don't mind turning on uh, a race on Friday night or Saturday and having Kyle Busch in it. And as someone that has worked in driver development over the last 16 years, the notion that Kyle Busch winning these races Hinders development of the young drivers that are in those races is flawed. It doesn't do anything. Uh, That a a win or a lack of a win does not eliminate the ability to learn. And these drivers have an opportunity to restart next to Kyle Busch uh, to enter into a pass encounter against Kyle Busch, and if they're lucky enough to maybe follow in his tracks and understand a little bit of what he's doing to make his car go fast. And that's pretty invaluable. And not only the competition learning, room.
0: let's not forget, Kyle Busch also owns a truck team, runs his own truck equipment. And one of his first comments after winning recently in Atlanta was to come across the radio and say, yes, let's make this good for Christian. I'm glad we learned more and let's do this again and make sure the truck is good Uh, For Christian Eckes, who's going to race it later on this season. So there is a not only the competition learning, but this young crop of drivers learning from Kyle Busch and um, benefiting from what he does out there on the track, ultimately. So, you know, haters going to hate So uh, Bush's success has uh, certainly been the big storyline. But looking at the cup series, Bush was a part of the big three last year. That also included Kevin Harvick and Martin Truex Jr. Truex finished second last week to Bush in Phoenix, but suspiciously missing from Phoenix, David, was Mr. Kevin Harvick, who you could call Mr. Phoenix for most times. Um, Let's look at, kevin harvick's year going on right now because look he's still the four team he's still with rodney childers uh but no wins so far this year i know we're only four races in but are you looking at this as a disappointment so far for kevin harvick certainly we expect them to be up there leading laps winning races that's not there yet is is it time to wonder what's going on with the four team
1: here are the facts Central Speed, which is a statistic exclusive to Motorsports Analytics subscribers that compiles and ranks speed per quarter averages, ranks Mr. Harvick second so far this year. The other three cars, ranked inside the top four, have wins. He does not, and that, that winless stretch included races at Atlanta and Phoenix, uh, tracks on which he has led his most laps. Now, this is the second time, just the second time in six years with Stuart Haas Racing that Harvick did not have a win at this very point in the season. Harvick also turned 43 last December and drivers go into a production decline after their age 39 seasons. Those are the facts. Alan I think I, I know what your stance is. I see all of this as a potential for panic. Alan, if you are a crew member on Kevin Harvick's number four team, how do you feel at this very moment right now, knowing the facts, knowing where you rank among them? Are you panicked? Panic is
0: a strong word. I am concerned we are not living up to the standard. On Eminem's last album, he called it the curse of the standard. Eminem came out of the box hot, right? And with these amazing albums, multi-diamond, 10 million sold, all these albums. And then when he had some ones that didn't quite sell 10 million, maybe only five, he was looked at as a disappointment. Kevin Harvick and crew have created a standard that we expect, expect these early season wins, expect the fast speed and expect the results. They are not again. I'm not panicked, but they are not living up to the standard. Therefore they have cursed themselves. That's the only part I would be worried about. I think of the playoff system. Do I, what I mean, do I think Kevin Harvick's not going to get a win this season and not be in the playoffs? Of course not. So that's why I'm not fearing anything at the moment. It's only four races is what I'd be telling myself. Of course, we're going to be in the playoffs. We'll be fine. What I do think to worry about though, David is, I mean, look, these are playoff points. He has two stage wins. Think about last year at this point, he'd already won three races. Think of all the points you rack up. And then you think of last year, Phoenix, when you, you know, those points proved to be valuable in helping him get to homestead. So, every one of these missed opportunities are points you've left on the table and maybe those do come back to haunt you. So while I'm not ultimately worried, it's a long season. It's early in the season. I think Kevin Harvick will be fine and get his wins and get in the playoff. I do wonder if we're going to look back at this early part of the season and think about missed opportunities. So not quite panic that I don't, I don't see this playing out across the season. We've had four races. Is that fair to judge an entire season of what may come David?
1: Your stance, which is probably uh, more micro to my macro, is actually pretty good. I don't think there should be panic, but that might not matter into the question of will there be panic when you consider that relative to other teams. This is a team with slim shady standards, as you just uh, so aptly put. It's an alpha team on what is likely the organization, Stuart Haas Racing, with the most resources in the series. Also consider that in the past, Kevin Harvick hasn't hesitated to can underperforming team members. There was a time for him when two straight seasons of third-place point finishes required the dismissal of crew chief Gil Martin. Harvick has a penchant for not handling these things well, and I'm kicking myself now for not writing this, and and part of the reason I, uh, I didn't do it is because there is some subjectivity in it. But as Harvick approaches the phase of his career that sees production decline, how does he react to that? I feel like based on his past, it might not go very well. Secondly, we might actually be hitting that part because some detail goes wrong before the bottom drops out. So for instance, for Tony Stewart, he was a very efficient mile and a half passer. All of a sudden, one year that just changed. He just couldn't do it anymore. And that signaled the beginning of the end in hindsight. I'm keeping a close eye out on Jimmy Johnson. His year wasn't spectacular last year and, and, and he doesn't, really interest me all that much just from a, from a writing perspective. I wrote a 1,500-word SWOT analysis on Hendrick Motorsports earlier this year, and I think I mentioned Jimmy's name once in it. Harvick had a foolproof statistical profile heading into this year. There weren't many cracks in the armor, but as cracks start to emerge, he is of the age where you're going to question it quicker uh, than you typically would for a normal driver. If it was Kyle Busch with a fast car in a slump like Harvick is currently in, you'd be less worried and there certainly would not be panic because it is a long season and he is Kyle Busch and he's nowhere near uh, his prime, so everything's fine. But Harvick's past his prime. So any small hole, any change uh, from what we're used to seeing is going to make you go on high alert. And I think that's something that we need to monitor down the road. I don't know that this is the uh, the well armed team of years past. They might be susceptible to the thing that that is inevitable in every driver's career, and that is that is production decline.
0: And a, again, calling a four race winless streak to start the season um, poor, or it just it's a reflection of the standard again that they have set for themselves. One thing I will point out, at least anecdotally. Is just that you know they call him the closer because uh, he earned that nickname uh, you know a decade or so ago when he was able to close out races. I think that's what we've seen. We've he's lacked so far this season is that you know he has stage wins which show us the car has speed. It's it's late in the races whether it be the new package or contact with Jimmy Johnson or a poor restarting position that led to another poor starting restarting position in Phoenix. Uh, the ends of these races have not been kind to Kevin Harvick and I think that's reflective of his finishes so far. Indeed. All right. So we've covered Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick. Uh, now let's get to some, we've had great listener feedback and some actual great questions, David. I'm glad you put the word out, the, you send out the bat signal on Twitter and on social media, and we got some great responses, and we're going to answer some of those questions now because they've sparked some uh, good discussions here. Let's start our first uh, question from StormyNormy42 on Twitter. Uh, they write, quote, last episode you talked about Christopher Bell's ridiculously high pass differential last year. I seem to remember him having to come from the rear relatively often, whether from pit penalties or from having to start from there. How much did this factor into his passing numbers? And David, a uh, great question from Stormy. I, I know what they're talking about because when you said it last week, I, I applauded it because obviously that, that car that Christopher Bell has, the 20 in the Xfinity series is already fast, and he was able to produce beyond that speed a ridiculous amount of positions on the racetrack uh, beyond what you would expect of a car with that speed. But as Stormy brings up, am I giving that too much credit? Is that one number not enough to look at in terms of the past differential?
1: Well, it it is a good question, and it deserves unpacking. I'm not sure Christopher Bell is the best example for this. Bell uh, only started twice uh, from the rear of the field last year, and as far as penalties go, he averaged uh, one penalty every two races, which was actually right around the series average. But last year, Jimmy Johnson started from the rear of the field four times at Las Vegas, Bristol, Darlington, and Texas. Johnson was a top five passer last year. He has traditionally been one of the, the best passers every year in the sport. Um, probably should be on his Hall of Fame placard if, uh, if they're using advanced stats around the time when he gets inducted. Uh, If not, that's okay. But uh, last year, Jimmy Johnson's surplus-adjusted pass differential, which is not his actual pass differential, it's an adjustment made based on the expectation of his running whereabouts, was plus 183. At Vegas, Bristol, Darlington, and Texas, he amassed 22, 4, 18, and 8 passes in his favor, respectively, comprising 28% of his total net. You might say that that is a big number, um, and I can understand why why Stormy Normy is asking this, but that's one of the best to do it, and that still illustrates, like the the Bristol especially sticks out. That was actually his 16th best passing effort uh, last year among the 29 tracks on which I measure uh, pass efficiency. That illustrates how difficult it is to actually work your way up through the field. It isn't a given, even though you have a fast car. You, you still have to navigate the landmines and then the lap traffic that you hit twice to get to where you need to go, and that takes talent. And here's Jimmy Johnson squeaking four uh, spots in his favor at Bristol. A, a better uh, example for this is Kyle Larson. Kyle Larson was the best passer in the Cup Series last year and he started from the rear of the field at Texas, Dover, Kansas, Kentucky, and Kansas again. uh, He missed driver intros at Kentucky. We need to get to the bottom of that. Not sure what happened there, but uh, Kansas had a backup car. The other four were somewhat crew chief discretion. Larson in those races at Texas was plus nine, Dover minus five, Kansas plus 33, Kentucky plus 33, Kansas plus 29. That totaled to 38% of his gain for the season, which was plus 259. Yeah, 38% is over a third. That's a pretty big chunk. Um, But again, illustrates the point, Larson and Dover, tough outing. That was actually his 24th best passing effort based on surplus passing value last season. Not a given, but I'm, I'm actually going to posit something that I want to give our listeners to think about. A lot of these post-qualifying and practice adjustments made by crew chiefs are done out of their own volition. They decide to make that adjustment. They don't have to. They see an opportunity to do so, and they act accordingly. Does Kyle Larson, being in your driver's seat, impact your decision making on this kind of call? I think it does. I think we we might be entering a snake-eating-the-tail situation here, but because Kyle Larson has proven to be such a good passer in years past, he makes decisions like starting from the rear a lot easier because the crew chief knows he's going to get those positions. Therefore, he has earned any kind of stat padding opportunity Mm -hmm. that might fall his way. Um, I find that interesting. And Alan, here's something to watch. I just mentioned Jimmy Johnson. We have an active litmus test this year. What does Chad Canouse do with William Byron with a driver that can't? passes efficiently as the seven-time champ, I'm going to say his motivations change. He might not be making an adjustment that he knows that he can get uh, get away with before the race because he might not know what he has on a passer.
0: And that leads to a crew chief knowing who or what he has and what the driver's capable of, correct?
1: <laughs> it shows why drivers with the ability to create their own track position, we're talking about Kyle Larson this week, Uh, I mentioned that as an example for John Hunter Nemechek and Christopher Bell last week, but what makes those guys so valuable is that it opens up the playbook on decisions and choices that a crew chief can make. Crew chiefs aren't acting with one hand tied behind their back. They have every option available to them. Chad Johnston saw some opportunities where he can roll the dice because he has Kyle Larson. He can get those spots back. The, those same kind of decisions are made on the pit box during green flag pit cycles, which I know we'll talk about later, um, for the same reason. They, they might they might try something uh, conservative, and if they lose spots, it's okay. We have a driver and a car that have the ability to earn those spots back. Ultimately, it allows a crew chief to focus on making the car better for the talented driver at his disposal.
0: Interesting stuff. It it points out just how valuable both the car and driver are. Just because you have a fast car and start from the back does not mean your driver can make all those passes. It is an earned... an earned spot on the track. Uh, good stuff. Good question from stormy Normy, 42. Next question from Mick Rose on Twitter quote, from my observation, it seems track position is more important in 2019. Have the stats shown a different trend by crew chiefs to gain track position so far this year. David, I can tell you the drivers certainly agree with Mick Rose in terms of every quote after Phoenix was seen like them commenting on the importance of restarts because track position does seem to be ever more important. But I think it's an interesting question for you because like at a race like at Las Vegas, we saw an entire green flag race save the two stage caution. So I don't know if that gave you enough material only four races into the season, but interesting question <laughs> from Mick Rose about uh, track position and what crew chiefs are doing to gain it. Uh,
1: That's okay. The sample size is small. We're just talking about Atlanta and Las Vegas uh, for green flag pit cycles post-Daytona. There wasn't one at Phoenix. At Atlanta, just looking at at how crew chiefs made decisions, it seemed they were merely trying to just keep track position, not necessarily gain it. Uh, They were on the defensive. Short pitting was optimal at Atlanta, and And pitting short became the popular tactic. So when one car came down, all the others came down, uh, at the same time in part to avoid getting jumped. There was, there was one long pit attempt at Atlanta by the 36 team of Matt Tift and crew chief, Mike Kelly. I have no idea why, but they actually retained the 31st place running position, (laughs) um, At Las Vegas, though, uh, this is probably going to be a little bit more up mix alley. Things played out about as we expected. There was more effort to game track position out of the green flag pit cycle. Uh, For a frame of reference, in the 2018 Las Vegas spring race, there were 15 instances in which a team pitted well before or well after what amounted to the popular window. In the race two weeks ago, there were 40. So that was an increase from 15 to 40. We talked two weeks ago on our podcast about how short pitting is mathematically viable, but I didn't expect uh, to see it. There were actually two instances in which it, worked very well it was during the first pit cycle between laps 37 and 65 Mike booger rabbits uh, short pitted Clint Boyer from 20th to 16th uh hey four four spots uh, out of a green flag pit cycle not a, a bad takeaway there Brian Patty pitted Ricky Stenhouse short and they retained the third position that was impressive during the first pit cycle I didn't think we'd see a lot of that we didn't the majority of what we saw in Vegas, Uh, were conservative or long pitting efforts. But on the season, it kind of goes back to what I mentioned at the top, crew chiefs very concerned about being on the defensive. Only 11 crew chiefs so far this season have a negative positional output through green flag pit cycles. Only two crew chiefs incurred a double-digit loss on normal tracks without a penalty. Uh, Jeremy Bullens is one on behalf of Ryan Blaney. Uh, It's a loss of 27 positions, 21 of which were due to a loss of a valve stem early in the Las Vegas race. And Tristan Smith on behalf of Ryan Priest. but that number is skewed thanks to his Atlanta pit road collision with BJ McLeod uh, knocking him backwards. But It hasn't been so much of a focus on getting gains as it has been just playing defense and keeping the track position that you have. Not a lot of risk so far Uh, that might change uh, going into this next weekend.
0: And remember, we have to remember what we are learning and what we're dealing with and what these crews are dealing with uh, with different aero package, different engine package. I think we've had a different scenario almost every race so far this season, and then we go to Fontana where it's a mix of the high, the high tire wear, and you have those aero ducts. Who knows what different strategy? It's all a big learning process, is what I'm getting at. So I think the more the more examples we have, I think maybe some trends will emerge for David to analyze, and I can't wait for that. <laughs> so, uh, good question. Thank you, Mick Rose, for that. Uh, next question: Bake Money One Two Five on Twitter wants to know. Is there data other than 10 or 20 lap averages, which is a good, which is good in a vacuum that could help tell the story of how an upcoming race may shake out. They want to know what you can extrapolate from just looking at some time sheets. David, is there anything you can look at to know how a race
1: may play out? I'm curious. What's your answer to this? Because you, you outed yourself last uh, two episodes ago as a fantasy player. Um, I, I want to hear what, what is, what does Alan Kavana look at when he's making such decisions?
0: That is interesting. Yeah. I don't know if bake, bake money one, two, five on Twitter is thinking about fantasy when, when looking about this, but maybe they are, but for, for fantasy players out there, I I can understand where they're going with this. Let's see if I'm picking a lineup for say the NASCAR fantasy live game, you know, who's going to do the best at Fontana this weekend. I, I tend to look at what, uh, recent finishes at the track, Uh, I do look at those 10 and 20 lap averages from, say, the final practice to see who is doing decent on a long run, uh, who has the highest average, who, you know, who is good, you know, at the beginning and throughout a run that usually is an indicator of who is the best. And then sometimes it's just uh, the head over the heart over, you know, what the numbers are telling you. And uh, there's some other strategy into playing the game right. But that that's really all I look into. And I will admit to checking with people in the garage once or twice and say, hey, who looks good? And uh, I don't know which question to ask, but that's why I'm glad to have David on my side. And sometimes I can listen and look at his stuff on Motorsports Analytics and try to make some educated guesses off of that. But in terms of how a race plays out, I, I never really thought of it in that, that kind of big picture sense. I just try to go with who I think may be fast come race day. And that sounds re- pretty elementary now that I explain it.
1: <laughs> Figuring out what the story of the race might be that that captured my imagination, it is something that I do. Uh, I actually work backwards. I look at previous races and see how they were won and see what uh, different driving styles emerged that day. Were good passers valuable? Were good restarters valuable? Did good strategists have a significant impact on the proceedings? We'll, we'll take the upcoming race in Fontana uh, as an example. The last two races there, the only two races at Auto Club Speedway in the stage racing era, were won by cars that led the most laps. And that is counter to what the track delivered in the few years prior. Yeah, there's this uh, abrasive surface and uh, tire wear is massive and to the naked eye, there seems to be a lot of volatility and a lot of passing, but that actually is not the case. In 2017, Kyle Larson won the race. Uh, we just praised his passing ability, but on that day, he was, I don't know, he was actually below average, still good. His surplus value for the race was plus 3%. That's actually worse than his overall value last year. So it wasn't even a good day by his standards, um, but the pass differential was plus 4 uh, last year, Martin Truex won with a surplus passing value of plus 0.76%. That was one pass, <laughs> more than than expected. So good passers weren't even something that Fontana rewarded. Fontana rewarded speed, track position, and clean air. To that end, I think qualifying day this weekend is going to matter uh, a lot. So might restarts. In last year's race, Truex is an okay restarter. He's not an elite restarter, but he didn't relinquish a single position on restarts in Fontana. Uh, for that matter, neither did Kurt Busch or Eric Jones. So boom, there are two interesting sleepers, I think, for you for this weekend. The, the tire fall off, yes, this will be a bigger version of Atlanta. So crew chiefs will likely treat this race similarly. Uh, To how they called Atlanta very conservative. And to that end, crew chiefs like Cole Pern and Chad Johnston, who are the two most recent winners, make sense here because they typically deploy strategies tailor made for a race like this. Um, So, in a race heavy on track position that also doesn't have a recent history in rewarding elite passers, I turn to the teams at the front of the starting grid that don't usually hemorrhage positions. I want a mistake-free team, and I want a fast team, but more important, we're we're eyeballing drivers that just don't make dumb mistakes and don't give up positions. Turex is that guy. Larson is that guy. We've seen on some occasions that Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick uh, are those guys. Um, maybe Kyle Busch on passing and Harvick in an older age in 2019 are a little bit more fallible than, than we'd like to have. But just going into the weekend without having seen qualifying, I'm looking at the guys that I'm most confident in for a race like this, because I think it's, it it is going to be a, a race long battle for track position. And it, Begins on qualifying day. Interesting
0: stuff. Everybody who listens to Positive Regression just won their fantasy week for uh, for Fontana. So there you go. We've uh, delivered that for you. Hopefully, I do too, David.
1: <laughs> I I mean, I hope you. I, I haven't even seen the results. Are you even winning your fantasy league? Because if you're not, and you're hosting a show about this, then, boy, we got to make some changes. Do
0: I really need to be real about this? I uh, I am not winning <laughs> my fantasy league because it's because of Daytona. Uh. I went with the uh, the strategy of starting, I won't call them scrubs, but th- there's some strategy because you can only start so many drivers uh, so many times per season. And I went with uh, the Daytona strategy of, well, oh, I would never start this person at any other time. And it, it backfired. Let m- I'll just say that. Let's say a good score is 220 for a week. I scored 80 and 80 is terrible. 80 will probably be the season low And I am digging out of a big hole. So for the rest of the season, in David, I trust. And I think that's a good strategy. (laughs) So I'm glad. Oh, oh, goodness. I know, I know. But uh, maybe I'll learn my lesson for next week in our next episode. But uh, yeah, so that was episode eight of Positive Regression. Don't forget, everybody, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you are hearing, Please leave a rating or review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated, and we know you are, so we thank you for that. We love your feedback. We love your questions on social media, so please reach out to us. If you have questions, we will answer them for you. We just did, and they were great questions, led to great discussions. Reach out to us on Twitter at PosRegPod. That's P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. That's on Twitter. Uh, David, what are you working on for the upcoming week?
1: So I introduced uh, Central Speed earlier in the episode and uh, actually do a regular column uh, every week on motorsportsanalytics.com called the Speed Rankings. I debuted it last year and it's back for 2019. Uh, A regular weekly column uh, ranking Central Speed for the NASCAR Cup Series, Xfinity, and Trucks. Uh, We are on week two of that right now on motorsportsanalytics.com. So if you're not already, uh, become a subscriber and check that out.
0: Absolutely. It is a major benefit to people in the sport, I can assure you. Uh, I will be on Race Hub uh, if you're listening to this Thursday morning. First of all, thank you. That's when it has just dropped. Make sure you watch Race Hub tonight on Thursday, and I will post it on Twitter. But I will be talking with Kyle Larson uh, this week as we look toward Fontana. Obviously, someone who has won at Fontana and in a position and season where restarts seem to be of high value, of course, and track position. Uh, I look forward to talking to Kyle Larson about just that fact because he said at Phoenix, majority if not all of his passes came during restarts, and he had a pretty good day considering the day he had the ups and downs to come back and get a top 10. So watch for that on Race Hub. And of course, just watch Fox all weekend. FS1 and Fox, it's been a good season so far, and I'm looking forward to getting back to the trucks one more week for that. But uh, just make sure you watch Fox all weekend for your Fontana coverage and uh, certainly appreciate everything you've got going on there. So again, thank you for listening to Positive Regression, a Motorsports Analytics podcast. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavanaugh. See you next time.